Just a reminder, I am going to be on the Get Vocal app every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central to talk all things true crime. It's a great way for you to interact with me and other listeners of the show. Head to Get Vocal, that's G-E-T-V-O-K-L dot com, or download the app on the App Store. And I'll see you there this Thursday. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. On a November night in 1996, a reclusive homeless Hispanic woman named Sofia Torres was walking to a friend's home around 10 o'clock at night. She took a shortcut through a dark park, but this decision cost her her life. With no leads and no reason anyone would have to kill the shy woman, would her killer be found? Okay, on to the show. Sofia Torres was born in Mexico in 1961. At age 23 in 1984, she left Mexico and went to Phoenix, Arizona, where she had a brother living. While in Phoenix, Sofia developed a long-lasting romantic relationship. But sadly, in 1994, this relationship ended. Because of this, Sofia left Phoenix and went to Santa Maria, California. She had three sisters who lived in Santa Maria, so perhaps her brother thought this would do her some good. However, in 1995, Sophia returned to Phoenix, only to discover her longtime boyfriend had been shot and killed. Once again, she returned to Santa Maria, heartbroken. His death had a profound effect on her. Before he died, Sophia had been described as outgoing and a hard worker. After his violent death, Sophia became reclusive and withdrawn. This was made even worse because Sophia almost spoke no English. When she returned to Santa Maria, Sofia went to work as a bartender at the Tres Amigos bar, but was let go after two weeks because she was too meek. She never drank, and after she was fired, she never returned to the bar to socialize. Sofia quickly became homeless in Santa Maria, and often took advantage of the services in the area for homeless people. One of those services was the Good Samaritan Shelter, where Gina Ojeda worked. Gina knew Sophia as well as anyone else did, which is to say, not very well at all. Gina described her as a very nice lady, very religious. Gina said Sophia also carried herself as a much older woman would, seeming to be 50 years of age, much older than her actual 35 years. Gina knew Sophia attended services at St. John Newman Church, and believed that Sophia had left the church and was walking through the park on the night of November 15, 1996. Sophia often lived with other homeless people at the 1700 block right of North Allison Street, which was in the opposite direction from the church, although police could not confirm this theory. Commander David Stern of the Santa Maria Police Department said Sophia did not fit the normal pattern of a murder victim, although he also agreed that murder scenarios were not typical. Commander Stern explained most murders were committed as a result of gang violence or domestic abuse. To this end, investigators believe Sophia was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Further testing revealed Sophia was sexually assaulted, including vaginal rape and sodomy. She was then murdered 
and left in the park until an anonymous 911 call came into the Santa Maria Police Department. On November 15, 1996, an unidentified male contacted 911 at 11.07 p.m. The caller was believed to be a Latino male. He alerted the 911 operator to a fight occurring in Oakley Park, close to the baseball field. He stated there were two heavyset black women who were attacking another woman with a baseball bat. The call came from a shopping center south of the park. The 911 operator asked why he was calling so far away from the scene, but the caller hung up. When listening to the recording later, they heard the caller talk to someone named Christy. They theorized he was picking up a wife or a girlfriend at the shopping center. Sophia's purse was found in the backyard of a house at the corner of Western and Gunner Streets, which bordered the park. This would play a pivotal role in the charges later brought against the suspect, as this discovery made the murder look to be a robbery and assault. Just moments after the 911 call was received, at 11.09 p.m., Officer Luis Murillo, with the Santa Maria Police Department, arrived at the darkened park. Officer Murillo had to use his headlights to even see the park. He quickly spotted a female lying on the ground near the snack bar. Fresh blood was at the scene, on the victim and the ground. Officer Murillo contacted dispatch for an ambulance, then felt for the female's pulse. He did not find one. The grass was wet, which revealed fresh bicycle tracks leading from the snack bar to the street. Blood spatter was found in various locations at the park, along with some personal items believed to be from the victim's purse. A fingernail file, toothbrush, and pencil were found at the bleachers closest to third base. The presence of blood spatter in so many locations indicated Sophia was attacked multiple times as she tried to flee her attacker. There were long strands of dark hair on the bleachers and blood spatter on the wall of the snack bar. Blood spatter was found on the bleachers closest to first base and also under the bleachers. The blood under the bleachers seemed as if Sophia had stood still. Her body was found on concrete, lying face up, with her long dress bunched up over her knees. In addition to the blood pulled around Sophia in this location, there was another pool of blood a few feet away, indicating she had also been there for a short while. There was a bloody palm print by the second pool of blood. Sophia's injuries were consistent with trauma from a smooth, blunt cylindrical object, such as a baseball bat. She had defensive wounds on her right hand, as if she'd been trying to fight off her attacker. Her nose was broken so badly, bone fragments were protruding through her skin. Sophia also had multiple blunt force traumas to her head, causing her brain to swell and flatten out. She had a deep stab wound on the right side of her face, Sophia did not have the physical appearance of being raped, but the autopsy revealed semen in her vagina and on her clothing. Police just needed someone to match the semen to, and due to the greed and lust of the murderer, they would soon be able to match it. On November 3rd, two weeks before her murder, a 16-year-old female identified in court records as Maria was on her way to work at the mall. Walking, she took her usual shortcut through an alley, but this time she was grabbed from behind. She immediately felt a knife against her throat and tried to get away, but she was grabbed even tighter. Then, the assailant grabbed her hair and pulled her backwards in the alley. Her assailant began undressing her, and Maria asked what he wanted, 
He replied, I want you. I want to mark your beautiful face. Maria thought he wanted to rape her. She smelled Snickers candy on his breath. Before he could do anything else, a young man walked into the alley and yelled at him. The assailant pushed Maria, but then punched her in the face. The young man, Francisco Javier Lopez, had been in his truck and spotted Maria struggling with her attacker. At first, he thought it was a couple having a disagreement, but then Maria made eye contact with him, and he realized she was in trouble. He set off the alarm on his truck and went towards the pair in the alley, yelling at the man. He saw Maria get punched in the face, and then the assailant ran off. Francisco ran to help the young woman and called 911. It was only later that Maria realized her pager was missing. Maria soon picked a suspect out of a photo lineup, saying she was 100% certain it was her attacker. This man was Tommy Jesse Martinez. On December 2, 1996, two weeks after the murder of Sofia Torres, a young woman identified as Laura was getting off of work at her job in the mall. As she walked through the mall's parking deck to get to her truck, she noticed a young male standing against the wall. Once she was inside the truck, she realized the male was running after her. So Laura locked the truck just as he reached it. He tried the handle, then looked surprised that it was locked. So he recovered and pointed to his wrist as if to say, what time is it? She told him she didn't know and the young male ran off. When she arrived home, she told her husband about the incident and he called the police. She picked a suspect out of a photographic lineup just a few days later. Laura also picked a photo of Tommy Martinez with absolute certainty. On December 4, 1996, around 9 p.m., a young woman identified as Sabrina was also getting off of work at the mall. She called her mother to come get her and then sat outside on a bench waiting. A young man walked over and sat down, then put a knife in her side and ordered her not to move or say anything, and he wouldn't have to stab her. He tried to force her off the bench and leave with him, but Sabrina refused. He suddenly told her, get your hand off my knife, and Sabrina realized she had grabbed the handle. The two stood struggling over the knife. Finally, he said he would go if she would just give him back the knife, but they continued to struggle. Sabrina began to scream, and he finally let go of the knife and walked away, but he turned back to smirk at Sabrina. She told him he wouldn't get away with it, and then she carefully watched him walk away, trying to memorize details to tell the police. She ran to a restaurant that was closed for the evening and banged on the door, but the woman refused to let her in, although she called 911 for her. The operator convinced the woman to allow Sabrina to enter so they could get details of what the suspect looked like. While on the phone with Sabrina, the 911 operator released information about the suspect over the radio. Officer Jeff Lopez responded and drove to the mall, looking for a Hispanic male wearing a black hoodie. Officer Lopez quickly saw a male matching that description, riding a bike down a nearby street. The suspect made eye contact with the officer and began pedaling faster. Officer Lopez could not reach the suspect in his car, so he called in his location, and it was just a matter of minutes before the suspect was taken into custody by other Santa Maria police officers. When Lopez asked him where he was going, 
the suspect lied about it. He was escorted to Sabrina's location, and she identified him without a doubt or second guess. The suspect was Tommy Martinez. While in custody, he heard one of the officers radio that he had the item used in his custody, and Tommy asked, did you find my knife? The officer asked, who said anything about a knife? The next day, investigators began to believe they had their suspect in Sofia Torres's murder. The investigators working Sofia's murder played the 911 call to Tommy's probation officer. The probation officer positively identified Tommy Martinez's voice. The investigators then went in and talked to Tommy for a few minutes and then left the interview room to compare his voice to the voice on the 911 tape. Convinced this was their suspect, they went back to the interview room to question him about the 911 call. He denied he called 911, but when he realized his probation officer knew it was his voice, he said he had gone to the park to meet Sophia to buy some crank from her. He said before he could, he saw Sophia being chased by two black women and beaten by them. He did not go into the park but kept walking and went home. However, he developed a conscience and went to a payphone to call 911 in case she needed assistance. He explained he did not identify himself on the 911 call because he was high. He said she was being chased onto the baseball diamond, but investigators asked why he said she was near the snack bar. He hesitated before answering and then replied he just wanted someone to get there fast to help her. The detectives explained to Tommy that Sophia was not a drug user and was a homeless person who would not be able to deal in methamphetamines. Tommy said he had met her earlier in the night at the Trace Amigos bar. Detectives pointed out the inconsistencies to which Tommy agreed, so they told him to think about it and ended the interview. On December 5th, they executed a search warrant at his house, looking for clothing that may have been worn during the murder including the white t-shirt, white pants, and white cap he said he had been wearing the night of Sophia's murder. They found nothing that matched the description he gave. The next search warrant was to obtain swabs from Tommy. On the ride to the hospital, the detectives questioned him again about the night Sophia was murdered. He changed his story somewhat and added details to the beating of Sophia by the two chunky black women. He said one was hitting her with her fist and the other was holding a baseball bat. Detectives argued with him that he could not have seen Sophia in the darkened park. They also told him they had matched the knife used to attack Sabrina with knives found at his home. They had gone to the Trace Amigos bar and talked to workers there who said Sophia had not been there because she did not hang out there. The next day, Tommy continued to deny involvement in Sophia's murder but finally admitted he attacked Maria and Sabrina, but just to rob them, not to rape them. He denied any involvement with the incident with Laura. Further investigation into the night of Sophia's murder included an astronomer, David Carey, who said the moon sat that night at 9.38 p.m. before Sophia died. Therefore, there would not have been enough light to witness the events as Tommy described them. Tommy's younger brother, Mario, said Tommy had come home with a pager sometime in November 1996. The pager kept going off, so Mario finally called the number and a girl who said it was her pager. Mario asked for the number, then told the girl she had dialed the wrong number and hung up. 
According to Maria, she called her pager to see if anyone would return the call. A young man did, said it was the wrong number, and hung up on her. Maria had the pager disconnected the next day, November 4th, 1996. Tommy Martinez had a prior criminal history. When he was 14, on April 24th, 1992, he robbed the cashier of an ice cream shop. Alicia Anaya was working at the Delicias de Mexico ice cream shop when the defendant came in, demanding money from her. The phone kept ringing while she was trying to empty the cash register, so Tommy kept hanging the phone up. After he had the money and was leaving, he told Alicia she was pretty. Just a few days later, he and another youth walked past the shop, and Alicia told her boss that he was the one who had robbed her. The boss ran outside, but was only able to grab his friend. A short while later, police took Alicia to a residence where she identified Tommy Martinez as the robber. He denied guilt, but then admitted he did it for a friend who needed the money. Barely a year later, he was held in the investigation of a burglary at a bread store. He again denied guilt, but an officer saw he had a sagging pants pocket and found a dagger in there. On February 23, 1994, when he was 16, Tommy and a friend attempted to rob Francisco Chavez at knife point while Francisco was working at Pepe's Liquors. Francisco pushed the silent alarm and minutes later the phone rang. Francisco told the caller he was being robbed and Tommy and his friend ran off. When they were detained by officers later, they did not find a knife on Tommy and Tommy said it was all a joke. On April 2, 1996, at the age of 18, Tommy Martinez was involved in an attack and home invasion on a 16-year-old. Willie Alejandre was drinking beer with friends across the street from his own home. A man approached Willie and began attacking him, claiming Willie had attacked his cousin. The man yelled at his friends to bring a gun, and Willie ran off into his house, locking the door. He told his mother, Josefina, to call the police. Tommy stood at the door and told Josefina to hand over Willie. Tommy and his friends kicked the door open, and when Josefina refused to hand over Willie, Tommy threw a flower pot at her. His friends threw other flower pots through the front windows, and Tommy also threw a beer can. Josefina's husband grabbed a hammer and chased the gang off, while his neighbor, Gabriel Resendez, grabbed a baseball bat and also gave chase. Tommy rounded on Gabriel with a broomstick and hit Gabriel's trunk with it. The police arrived and the gang ran off, but they overtook Tommy. He denied that he had done anything. Tommy was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, resisting arrest, burglary, and child endangerment, and held on a $20,000 bond. One of Willie's neighbors, a 69-year-old woman, was injured when a flower pot hit her leg, and a child was showered with glass when the gang began breaking windows. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Globe Inn is the most customizable subscription box. It's a verified member of the Fair Trade Federation, which means they pay artisans a reliable wage, which covers all of their basic needs, which is so incredible and so important to me. Every month, Globe Inn has four to five brand new box themes, and you can choose one of these as your monthly selection. They also make available many of their previous bestsellers, so if you don't like any of the new themes, you still have plenty of options and you can build your own collection of the artisan box. 
If you prefer to be surprised like I do, then Globin will just choose a box for you. So to get $20 off your first box on any three-month-plus subscription, head to Globin.com and enter code TRUECRIMEFC at checkout. Once again, to get $20 off your first box on any three-plus-month subscription, head to Globin.com and enter the code TRUECRIMEFC at checkout. Tommy Martinez's trial began May 4, 1998, with jury selection. A pool of 300 potential jurors were questioned, first to see if there was a reason they could not serve. Judge Rodney Melville, Santa Maria's Superior Court judge, excused approximately 150 of these potential jurors for various reasons, such as health concerns, if they were self-employed or if they had firm vacation plans. Eventually, after a week, the eight-woman, four-man jury was selected. The actual trial began on May 19th and concluded on May 29th, after the jury found Tommy Martinez guilty of murder, murder in connection with rape and robbery, kidnapping, robbery, assault, and attempted rape. As the jury forewoman read the verdicts, Tommy's mother and other family members began weeping. The forewoman's voice caught a bit, but she took a breath and carried on. The sentencing stage was next, and District Attorney Tom Snedden requested the death penalty. During the penalty phase, the defense provided testimony from several expert witnesses, as well as from Tommy Martinez's family. Tommy's youngest brother, Angel, 10 years old at the time of the trial, testified that he idolized his big brother and read a letter Tommy had written him while in county jail. The letter said Angel had a good pitching arm, and he could be the best pitcher in the West Side Little League. Tommy ended the letter by saying, I miss you. Take care of yourself. A medical expert also testified in the penalty phase. Dr. Joseph Wu, a medical imaging expert at the University of California, Irvine's medical school, stated that a scan of Tommy's brain showed significant frontal lobe abnormalities in the area that controls aggressive tendencies and impulsiveness. Tommy had huffed glue as a teenager, which could have caused disorders such as aggressive tendencies and violent behavior. Several relatives testified in this portion about the troubled home life Tommy had as a young child. His mother and father met while in their teens, and his mother became pregnant with him at 16. She was forced to marry his father. Before Tommy turned a year old, his father, Tommy Sr., was imprisoned for rape, and thus began the cycle of Tommy Sr. being largely absent from the family. When Tommy was 10, his father began to have an affair with a neighbor. He left Tommy's mother, Eva, who was pregnant with the couple's fourth child. In 1987, Tommy lost his grandmother, but also gained a brother, Angel. After this, Tommy began to spend time with his uncle, Rick Martinez, and even went to church with him. However, at age 12, Tommy began to get in trouble. He and his younger brother Isaac, just a year younger, were caught stealing cassettes from a store, although they were not prosecuted. After this, Tommy started skipping school, but his mother did nothing. In fact, she often picked him up from school when she was feeling depressed. She caught Tommy sniffing glue in his bedroom and admonished him, saying it would ruin his brain. Shortly after, Tommy began using other drugs such as marijuana, alcohol, and methamphetamines. During eighth grade, 
Tommy was expelled and dropped out of school, but had to return after he robbed the ice cream shop and was placed on probation. Tommy Sr. had returned briefly, but was imprisoned once again for fighting and drunk driving. Tommy Sr. wrote his son and admonished him to stay away from drugs and encouraged him to leave Santa Maria because of the gangs. However, Tommy stayed in trouble and, after robbing the liquor store, was sent to Los Prietos Boys Camp, where his father had been sent as a teenager. Tommy escaped the camp and was sent to Northern California to live with his uncle. While there, he began a relationship with his step-cousin, resulting in his uncle turning him into the authorities. By now, Tommy's younger brother, Isaac, had also been sent to the camp. Both boys left the camp together and stayed with their father in Simi Valley for less than a day before Tommy Sr. set out to take them back home to their mother. On the way, though, Tommy Sr. was stopped and arrested for drunk driving and was sent back to prison for four years. Tommy was very close with his youngest brother, Angel, acting more like a father figure to the boy, teaching him how to ride a bike and play baseball, and also picking him up from school. Other relatives testified that Tommy was also a positive influence on them. During testing for the trial, Tommy was determined to have an average IQ. Dr. Peter Russell, expert witness for the state, testified that Tommy had a verbal ability in the 45th percentile, but his nonverbal ability was in the 90th percentile. Dr. Russell believed this could have been an issue with the English language itself. Dr. Russell also believed Tommy had neurological issues. He was right-hand dominant, but Tommy performed some tests better with his left hand. After listening to witnesses and victim impact statements, the jury decided on the death penalty for Tommy. As the sentence was being read, his family yelled out, murderers, at the jury. His grandfather yelled, you're murderers, all of you. Bailiffs escorted about nine members of the Martinez family out of the courtroom. Tommy's grandfather was the first to go. Tommy Martinez was admitted into San Quentin on September 29, 1998. He is still on death row. His brother Isaac was convicted of murdering his wife, Maria de Jesus Martinez, in 2013. After Isaac shot his estranged wife twice in the left breast, he fled California for Arizona with his father, Tommy Sr. Isaac was later caught and taken back to California. When he was found guilty of murder, he was sentenced to 25 years to life, but because of a prior conviction, that doubled to 50 years. He was also charged on a weapons violation, which added another 25 years. He was admitted into R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility on April 12, 2013. He is eligible for parole in February 2039. The two women Tommy attacked testified in court during the victim impact statement portion of sentencing. Maria said she had suffered after the attack because she became afraid of other men. She said she could no longer eat a Snickers bar after the attack. Sabrina stated she was also scared around men after the attack and panicked one night at work when a man wearing gloves asked her to help him find some jeans for his girlfriend. Sofia Torres was described by Gina Ojeda as a woman who just wanted to help others. Gina said she loved helping other people especially people who had kids. She thought maybe Sophia had lost a child or worked with children in the past. Gina said Sophia wouldn't do anything to upset anyone and would just walk away if she got upset. Sophia's family spoke at Tommy Jr.'s sentencing, 
Her older sister, Victoria Francisco, said that Sophia's murder was like a dream and she still had a hard time realizing she was dead. She hurt thinking of all that Sophia suffered. Her brother, Gilberto, said when he went to her funeral, he opened the casket and didn't even recognize her face. Her father, Angel Torres, also spoke and said he felt her death very deeply and that his family had never suffered anything like this before. All people agreed that Sophia was not a bad person and never harmed anyone. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. And I'm your host, Lainey. <laughs>